This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, food writer Melissa Clark, columnist for the food section of the New York Times since 2007. She's the author of more than 30 cookbooks, including Cook This Now, Chef Interrupted, and most recently, Dinner in French. A passionate culinary educator, both in print and through her cooking videos on Instagram and the website of the New York Times, she brings a rare charisma and an irresistible zest for all things kitchen-related. Melissa Clark, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Melissa Clark, what do Brooklyn Jews and oat buttery French cuisine have to do with each other? (laughs) Well, I mean... There's a lot of crossover, but in my particular case, um, my family of Brooklyn Jews spent every summer when I was a kid um, in France. And this was this was a long time ago. This was back in the um, remember back in the 80s and the 70s. Um, psychiatrists in the United States normally took the whole month of August off. So if you had a mental breakdown in August, you had to wait till September because everybody was, you know, in the Catskills or they were, you know, um, on Martha's Vineyard or in the case of my parents, we were in France. So my parents fell in love with France right after medical school and um, they made it their their life goal to go every single year. And the way we did this is that we house exchanged, which, you know, now, you know, people are used to house exchanging you know, with Airbnb and the Internet. It's easy. But this was back in the 1980s when there was no internet. There was no Airbnb, of course. And we would get this big printed book every January which had lists of people in different parts of the world, all over the world, who were interested in a house exchange. And my parents would write to the ones in France and they would type out their letters on blue onion skin air mailers and mail them off. And then weeks later, we would get replies. And we would pack up and we'd go to France and the French people would pack up and they'd come to Brooklyn. Brooklyn back then was very different from Brooklyn now. Um, we definitely got the better end of the deal. And um, it, so France was really, you know, it, for, it was where I, um, it was hugely important in my life and it was where I, I learned to cook. So open air markets, tell us about open air markets that you became acquainted with when you were a kid and you hadn't seen anything like the fresh produce and the whole idea of, quote, seasonal eating was not something being talked about in the general American conversation when it came to food. Yeah, it really wasn't. I mean, we didn't have farmer's markets. Um, I don't think we had farmer's markets in New York, really a whole farmer's market network in New York until the 90s. Um, so when I was growing up, we I never, you know, we, we, it was either the supermarket or it was, um, yeah, it was pretty much the supermarket. I mean, back to where we got our stuff or like little specialty markets, you know, little vegetable stands. But there was nothing like the open-air markets that all over America um, were lucky enough to have. But in France, that's how everybody in France shopped. We would follow the market from town to town. You know, every in an area in France, there's a market day. Every town has a different market day, and you would just follow it. So every on Monday, we'd go to one teeny little town, and we'd look at the church of the town, and we'd go to if there was a museum or maybe we'd, there'd be a restaurant and we'd, you know, we'd do our shopping in the morning, spend the afternoon and then come home and look at what we had bought that day, which was, of course, local and seasonal because these are all, you know, farmers coming in, driving in with their wares, and we would cook dinner. It was just not something that we could do back home. 
yet it's something so common today. And so I was cooking that way. I was brought up cooking that way. To me, that's the only way to cook. And um, you, helping people be able to cook seasonally and cook with local produce is part of what I try to do. So coming back to Brooklyn in the end of August, beginning of September every year, you don't walk out the door in the 80s or the 70s and and find the farmer's market and find all that. So how how did you all translate? I mean, were you in the kitchen cooking with your parents? I mean, I gather they had wonderful dinner parties and they were, of course, you know, cooking from Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean all the ingredients were necessarily there. So was there a translation that had to be done for Brooklyn in 1978? Yeah, there really was. So, I mean, there was, I, so I remember going to, you know, um, when I, I went to high school in Manhattan. So my dad would meet me in the city and we would go to Belducci's and, you know, or we'd go to Zabar's. We'd have to go to a specialty store to get things that are so common today, but to get things like Parmesan, really good Parmesan cheese, really good olive oil, um, cheeses from France. And it was, um, or, you know, special mushrooms. Like I remember when, going to Belducci's and buying chanterelle mushrooms and just how special they were. And, you know, the whole meal, if we could get these mushrooms, what can we do with them? And we'd just fry them up in a pan with butter and garlic and parsley and pile them up. And maybe we'd have some, you know, thin cutlets of veal or chicken, but maybe not. Maybe we'd just have these amazing mushrooms and some French cheese. And um, But it was a special occasion. You know, we take that stuff for granted now. I can go to my, I mean, I could get chanterelles in Brooklyn at the local, well, even now, even in the middle of coronavirus pandemic, I can go to my local market, my, you know, it's pretty upscale, and I can get chanterelles. That's amazing. What kind of role has music played in your life? Because obviously everybody loves music, and I've always said that everybody who loves food loves music especially, and uh, the converse as well. Everybody who loves music loves food especially. There's a lot that goes along in common uh, between food and music. And you're obviously very passionate about music as well. Uh, you know, you see postings on Instagram at the opera and things like that. And not many people will sit through a 16 hour Wagner ring cycle uh, <laughs> unless they <laughs> really, really like music or unless they really like Wagner. It's usually both, but it's actually sometimes only the latter. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, has music always been an important part of your life? You know, it's funny because as you were, you know, um, t just speaking just now, I was thinking that you know, France is where I learned how to cook because um, I didn't, we didn't cook with my family. My parents were psychiatrists. They worked really long hours. I didn't see a lot of them except when I was in France. And France is also where I fell in love with music. It was exactly, it was the same thing. We would go, I just remember going to churches, to concerts in churches all over France, and you'd have these amazing free concerts of classical music. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, for me back then, it was amazing. It certainly wasn't, uh, most of it was pretty, you know, standard. I mean, it was mostly, it was a lot of Mozart and Vivaldi, and but it was wonderful, it was beautiful, and it was in these, spaces where the acoustics were incredible and we you know they were free and I remember we would just my mother was um, my mother played the piano and she um, also was very passionate about music and so even if we didn't stay for the whole concert you know just popping into these churches and staying in the back and just listening for a little while and the older my sister and I got the longer we would stay and then I was a student in France I did a year um in Paris, and that was when I fell in love with opera. I had um, been to the opera in New York, but I hadn't really, I, I remember seeing La Boheme when I was in high school, and it just, it didn't stick. 
um, it was like a, a production for high school kids. And it just wasn't, you know, and you're there with your classmates and you're just not paying attention. But then when I was in college and I went to Don Giovanni at the Paris Opera, and this was the old Paris Opera, not the new one. And it was one of those incredibly spare, minimalist stagings. And I can't remember whose it was that I tried to look it up but I can't find it. And it was so beautiful and so spare. And the music, because, you know, the staging was just so spare and, and, and you know, not, not like a Zeffirelli. Like, you know, I think the Boheme I had seen was Zeffirelli, and it was so full of life, and it was almost distracting. This was just beautiful. And I just fell in love. I remember sitting at the edge of my seat wondering what was going to happen. <laughs> and, well, then Don, and then when we dragged down to hell at the end, it just I was, I was crying. Um, and so that was the beginning of me becoming an opera lover. I was about 19, and it really stuck. And I don't play. I mean, I, I took piano lessons for years. I don't have any talent, unfortunately, but I just I do have a great a great love. And so from there, um, opera was always my thing. I have always gone to the opera since then. And now I have my husband is um, expanding my musical tastes a lot. He loves all music. He's a big music guy, and so um, we we've been spending a lot more time actually. Um, We've been spending a lot of time with the uh, Berlin Philharmonic, which has been free for the month of April. So we've been watching concerts, and um, and that's been our that's been our uh, confinement plan at night is go on watch the Berlin Philharmonic and um, and listening and you know experiencing music in a different way. And he has an incredible like sick killer sound system up there in his office. So it's we do it right. Well, that's pretty good, and it's hard to forget. The final scene in Don Giovanni when he he's dragged down to hell, and uh, no no matter what the production, I mean, when I was a kid, the the two operas that I listened to constantly between the ages of eight and eleven probably were La Boheme and Don Giovanni, and there was not a time that I wasn't listening to one of them. And uh, of course, oh, that's so funny. Of, of course, I mean, uh, when when you it's funny you mentioned the high school production of La Boheme because I often find now that I'm in the performing field and I'm sort of not not going to concerts much, but I'm sort of playing kids' concerts, you know, 50 a year or something. I really find that what I hear and what I see, that, that kids actually respond better to the real thing and to a non-watered-down version, and that they can tell when when you're presenting something. This is for ages 9 to 12, no younger and no older. <laughs> and yeah. and they, they, can, they really respond better to the, the thing that is how it was meant to be. La Boheme is written four acts by Puccini. I think you're right. You know, just thinking about it, you know, we took Dahlia, we took our daughter, who's now 11, but when she was about seven, we took her to the um, to the Magic Flute version for kids, you know, that's the 90-minute version. Sure, sure. And she, she bored out of her skull at the mat, bored out of her skull. But yet, um, when so now she's been learning to play the viola, and um, we so we've been playing um, a lot of, she's been learning Beethoven, we've been playing a lot of Beethoven, and when she listens, it's just a totally different thing, like the way she's interacting with the music now, listening to the best, you know, listening to really great performances. And I've even played the whole magic flute for her, and, and she liked, she's like, this is so much better. She really, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's funny how that works. If you try to spoon feed someone what you think is best for them, um, you often end up being wrong, and you, and you underestimate their capacity, especially young people, to to get it and it doesn't mean they need to understand every word and be able to sit down and analyze musicologically the three and a half hour piece uh, but they respond to the emotions much better when you give them what the composer and the librettist wanted to originally that's just what i found i think it's exactly the same with food and kids kids can handle real food 
and they don't need, you know, chicken nuggets necessarily. I mean, they're fine, but I think they can handle, we've always, you know, given our, our kid real food and, and just watching them, you know, eat anchovies. Like my daughter loves anchovies, you know, it's just like they can handle it if you have faith that they can. Okay, so talk about anchovies. Let's. You know, I'm glad you brought us back to food because that's that's sort of what you do. So um, talk about anchovies because I, I have a feeling that it's probably one of your 10 favorite foods in the world. Oh, God, yeah. I love anchovies. You know, and it's, what's interesting is that I feel like the world is a different place now. I feel like in the past 10 years, eh, five years, people have become much more receptive to anchovies. And I don't know if it's because they're finding better brands on the market. I don't know. I don't know why, but five, six years ago, I could not write a recipe with an anchovy in it, like very rarely. And now people are hungering for them. I will walk down the street and people will stop me and say, you made me love anchovies. So <laughs> I, I love how, I just love how we, um, our tastes evolve kind of as a, as a, as a culture. And we are very, we're in a pro anchovy moment, which makes me so happy. But yes, it's one of my 10 favorite foods. Absolutely. Anchovies, garlic, lemons, butter. Okay, now that you mentioned all a few ingredients, just, just just tell us, let's say all we have in our pantry, it may not be the case, but just pretend all we have in the pantry is anchovies, garlic, lemon, and butter. What do we do? Do we have some bread? <laughs> Maybe, a, yeah, some? okay, a loaf. We have one loaf. Okay, then we have, we, have a, we have the best anchovy toast ever. Oh my gosh. So you take your loaf, you, you cut a slice, and you toast it, and you have to get it nice and really crusty and, and nicely darkly toasted. And then you take your garlic, and you have it, and you rub that garlic, the cut side of the garlic, into the loaf, and the um, the toast, the roughness of the texture of the bread will turn that garlic into paste, and it will spread all over that bread and get infused with garlic. And then you take your butter and you spread it thickly on top, and you lay your anchovies on top. And I'm saying we have um, salted butter just because, you know, we didn't say we didn't. And um, <laughs> you put your anchovies on top and then you squeeze a little lemon. And that is the best lunch, dinner, breakfast, snack. It's amazing. And we can do that anytime because there's nothing seasonal about anchovies that are sitting in, in a, a box of salt or a, uh, or, or a packet of what? How else would they be packed in? In salt or oil? Yeah, usually, I mean, you can get them in salt, um, which we do. We have them. I really love the ones in good olive oil, um, either from Spain or from France or from Italy. Those, I think they're so delicious. And then the oil, if, you, if they're really, you know, you pay $12 for a little tin, and you can use, that oil is such good quality, you can use it for things. Like, I'll put it in a salad. I'll use it as salad dressing oil. It is a feared fish, the anchovy. I feel like it's because people, when they were kids, had anchovy. They met an anchovy on top of a pizza at a really bad pizzeria, and it was a really bad anchovy. You know, like the crappy quality, and it was just the whole thing was just terrifying. <laughs> and and and, you know, and the the local pizzeria where I grew up in New Hampshire was called everything but anchovies. It really was. No. It, absolutely, really? EBAs. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Okay, so... Well, so exactly that, then. <laughs> exactly that. You guessed it. You knew what was going on in Hanover, New Hampshire at the time. I guess so. <laughs> okay, so talk to us about how you got into writing, because you went to Stuyvesant, um, and you were studying writing at an early age in high school, and uh, there was someone there, you'll tell us, who told you maybe you can make a go of a career in writing. Uh, yeah, so I was lucky enough to have Frank McCourt as um, 
one of my writing teachers in high school, and Stuyvesant was a math and science high school, and I don't have a math and science brain. Um, it was just never, I just never, I never clicked, it never clicked for me, but I had some, I had a physics teacher who read Proust, and so that was like one, I was like, oh, wait, this is really good, and then I had Frank McCourt, who said, you, you could be a writer, you're going to be a writer, and, um, and that was amazing, I mean, that just gave me confidence. Um, I, I kept that with me. You know, you keep that little flame with you. You just take it with you everywhere you go. And even when I went to college and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a lawyer, like I'll be a, you know, a civil rights lawyer, or maybe I'll be, um, what were some other, or maybe I'll be an academic. I really fell in love with um, early modern history. So um, maybe I'll do that. Uh, but I always kept this little idea of Frank McCourt said I could be a writer. And um and uh, I eventually had the courage to be able to do that. I think, you know, it is scary when you don't come from a family of creative, you know, people who are artists or cre- people who make their living in a creative way. You know, I came from a family of doctors, so it was very, you know, specific. You go to school and it was a clear path. And writing is a less clear path. Um, and so for me, I split the difference by going into journalism because that was a, a clearer way to write. You knew that you would be employed and you would have path you know I think it's 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 funny if I had if I had different parents I might be doing something different I might be writing differently do you ever think about that like where you know how where you might be absolutely the other that other path Ab- absolutely I mean I I was always given the freedom and and just told to do what I love luckily I found what I loved at age four and a half I fell in love with the cello and other than a then a, a short period sort of around the, the La Boheme Don Giovanni obsession where, where I wanted nothing more than to be a great tenor. I, of course, I wanted to be Pavarotti. Then my voice changed. I realized that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I was not going to be an yeah. operatic tenor. Uh, luckily, cello was there, and I fell in love with it at four and a half and with music and, and never fell out of love with it, quite to the contrary. And, of course, my parents were not professional musicians, but extremely knowledgeable about music and both very passionate and you know my mom would sit with me practice take notes at all the lessons but i was never forced into it which is partially why i think why i i I love it more every day than the day before talk about working with chefs because one of your sort of interesting points that you've made before is that you don't have a formal culinary education and hardly regretting that you think it's a good thing you've had an amazing practical education in professional kitchens with chefs, Daniel Boulou, Claudia Fleming, people like that. So you stand in the corner of the kitchen, take notes. How did that work? Yeah, that's exactly what I do. I stand in the corner of the kitchen and take notes, and I watch what they're doing, and I ask a lot of annoying questions. Um, But what was so great about that is that, um, well, two things. One thing is I got, it was almost like getting private cooking lessons from some of the world's best chefs. You know, I would watch the way they would do something and learn from the masters, you know, of their, of their field. But another thing was that it also, by working with so many different chefs, it showed me that not every chef does it the same way. You know, I was, uh, especially going to France a lot, I think partly that's why I had this idea, this very strong idea that there was one way to chop a proper way to chop an onion and a proper way to make a sauce and a proper way. And you just had to learn that way. And it was very rigid. Um, but watching all these chefs, I learned that there's so many ways to slice an onion, and you slice it differently depending on what you want to bring out of it, um, and different ways to heat oil in a pan, and different ways to think about how you're gonna, when you're gonna add the butter, or when you're gonna add the salt. And that 
difference and the spectrum was fantastic because it gave me possibilities and choices in my own cooking. And it also gave me confidence to go out on my own and create recipes because I thought, well, you know, nobody, everybody does it differently and all ways are right as long as the end is delicious. So that was really important in terms of um, me being comfortable creating recipes. So we have the sort of different points converging. We have the Melissa Clark having been passionate about writing and literature and studying with Frank McCord and then studying at Columbia. And then we have the other path having come from summers in France and eating great food and becoming acquainted with all that. And, and then they converge at the New York Times uh, about, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Well, I started freelancing for the Times. Uh, my first byline was, I think, in 1997. So 20. Is that 20? So, well, yeah. Um, and But I went on staff. I got, and then I started a column in 2007, and I went on staff in 2012. So they all converge here, and you're writing regular columns and, and doing regular cooking videos, which are, are really fun to watch, and a lot of people have fun watching them, uh, because they make sense, and, and they're fun, and you don't feel a ton of pressure um, from you coming out of the computer to me uh, to, to not make a mistake in the dish <laughs> that I'm going to cook. And you sit at a desk and wonder, what am I going to write a recipe for this week? I mean, what, where does it come from? You've done hundreds of recipes and uh, many cookbooks, and you don't run out of inspiration. I guess that's impossible, yeah? Well, I mean, sometimes I feel it dry up, but then you just have to go out there and eat more and read more and think about things more, I guess, and it comes back. You know, it's actually funny because right now I've, I'm talking to a lot of people who are cooking more than they've ever cooked in their lives, and they're trying new recipes, and they're stretching themselves, you know, and they're challenging themselves in the kitchen, because they're getting bored, you know, they're losing their inspiration. And so it's my job more than ever to inspire people. Um, and that has been, on the one hand, it's kind of daunting because I, I does feel like we're all in this together in a way. And I, I need to kind of help people cook. Food is one of those things that we can still really enjoy and maybe enjoy even more than before. Um, so how do I, so to keep my own inspiration, um, I'm trying hard to, you know, well, I mean, I look for food every, in every single place. You know, I look for it in literature. I, try, I look for it, I even find it a little bit in music, you know, um, <laughs> because the way I find it in music is um, not through the sound, but through uh, knowing about the composer, right, or knowing about the place that, uh, a concert is performed. So an example is we've been watching, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic, and we've been watching concerts that take place in one of the things we've been looking for is beautiful rooms in Europe where they play a concert that's not a concert hall. You know, like in Versailles, for example, or, or just other beautiful grand salons. So you can look around, and then you think, well, what are they eating there? <laughs> What's, you know, where are they all going after the concert? Yeah. You can let your mind just play, um, or you can think about... Um, uh, you can think about Janacek and think, okay, so like, what would he have eaten, you know, or or composers from around the world. So that's been that's definitely. Um, I, I think about food all the time, so I think about food then too, and then literature too. I mean, right now, I am. I've got three books going. Um, I am listening to two books because uh, I take a lot of walks, and I listen to one book with my daughter, one book by myself, and then I'm reading a book. So I've got three books going. And what so are they? There's lots. Of, uh, so I'm reading, and as an actual book, I'm reading The Mirror and the Light, which is a new Hilary Mantel. It's part of the Wolf Hall trilogy. 
it's the final book. So that's about Sir Thomas Cromwell, and that takes place in Elizabethan, or, you know, um, Henry, uh, you know, pre-Elizabethan England, um, Henry VIII's England. So um, that's, you know, so I'm thinking about, okay, well, what were they eating? And, and they, she does talk a little bit about food in that book. Um, and then I'm listening to uh, Jane Austen's Emma with my daughter, and Jane Austen actually never really talks about food except for, you know, to point out the peccadilloes of a character. So we get things like gruel and hard-boiled eggs, so that's not very exciting. Um, <laughs> and then the, and then I'm also listening to Middlemarch, um, George Eliot. So <laughs> no food in there either. But it's still the milieu. You know, I think for both of those um, 19th century British novels, I can think about strawberries and cream and and meringues and eaten mess and things like that. Not everybody is giving you such obvious material as Rossini with his tornado. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then that's been... <laughs> and then I just think, where am I going to get the photograph for that? That's right. Hudson Valley, is it possible or not possible now? I don't know, actually. It's a really good question. I'm not sure what their production is. Plus, I'm not sure where, where, where did the law go. I think we might be phasing foie gras out in New York State. I heard it was out, then in, then out, then in. So I, I don't know what it is now. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. So you've been listening to a lot of interesting music recently. Um, for example, the Big Peasants Chorus from Act One of Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky. Uh, everything from that to Julia Holter uh, singing Have You in My Wilderness. So um, who picks the music around your place? Or do you just go on Spotify or whatever and, and say, I want to hear Tchaikovsky and uh, you put it on? We, are, we have a very complicated music system. We have something called Rune and Tidal. So we're not Spotify people, so it's two other systems. And um, my husband is, um, he, has, he listens to new music all the time. He's constantly collecting. Um, and he has, and so we, he tags music on the, in Rune on this file. He creates a file called Things That He Thinks I Would Like. So I go in there and I can just pick things. So I discover new music through him. Which has been, which is great. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I'm so lazy about finding new music now because I don't, I don't really have to, I don't really have to do anything. I just look in there and, and there'll be something like Julia Holter, who's a, you know, contemporary composer, kind of, I don't, I don't even know how, did you listen to her? Did you, I, you know, did you I, I listened and I, I loved, I thought of sort of dreamy outer spacey. Yeah, and her, her, her voice is so beautiful, it's so ethereal. So, um, I'll, I'll find something, you know, through through him that way. But then there's also, I mean, I, mean, I will go through, we have all the radio stations in the world, right? And so there's a, I have a list of classical music radio stations, and I'll just go through them, and I'll listen to, you know, Francie Zeke, or I'll listen to, there's a great radio station um, um, in Ireland, and I forget the name of it, and I'll just go to classical musical sta music stations around the world, and I'll listen, and I'll see what they're playing. And I'll find stuff like that. Um, and then also, you know, it's funny. It's, so I've been, it, I really want to get back to this Berlin Philharmonic experience that I've been having because, like I said, we don't go to concerts, we don't go to the Philharmonic very often. We don't go to concerts very often because, you know, we would usually have, we wouldn't have great seats. And also I find it hard to watch the musicians. We're so far away, even with opera glasses. But when you watch it on a, on a giant TV and listen on a really great sound system and see it so close, all of a sudden it all makes sense to me. And it come alive in ways that I have never been able to understand. Like to watch, you know, one part of the orchestra play something and then see the other, you know, the cameras will just pan it and you can see the other part respond and see how music is a dialogue in a way I've never understood before. I know to you this is sounding like 101, music 101, 
but to me it's been life altering and so then I've I've found stuff like I've like Ray Funk Von Williams, I've listened to him over my whole life and I never really understood it. And now all of a sudden I saw one of a concert, uh, Simon Rattle um, conducting, and it was this Ray Fun Williams piece, um, you know, um, Fantasia. Um, for, uh, Fantasia on, was, on, on the themes by Thomas Tallis, yes. Yeah, Thomas Tallis. With Fantasia, and it was mind-blowing to just watch and listen at the same time and, wa- and really, like, watch the musicians. So... Um, that's been a new experience. This has just been in the past six weeks. It's been a new experience. So I can see my life, my musical life expanding. That's super fun. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled for that. I think that's great, musical life expanding. <laughs> in, in the last couple yeah. of minutes, I can't avoid the sort of elephant in the room, which is that we're all inside and there's a pandemic going on in spring of 2020. And a lot of people don't love to be in the kitchen. And a lot of people are now forced into the kitchen, if, especially if they live in rural areas and they're not getting food delivered and things like that. Can you give us a few easy, simple, and really great tasting dishes that aren't intimidating, that come to mind that someone can do just in their kitchen if they're feeling crunched and pressured uh, and they need good food to eat? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. Um, okay, well, one of my, so I, I talked about the anchovy toast that we've been making, and we've been eating that probably once a week because it's so comforting. But something that I um, I love to do, um, I mean, pasta, of course, right? But this is my favorite pantry pasta because it doesn't take any ingredients. Like say that you don't, you haven't gone to the market or you're, you're on that day before you, your every other week trip to the market and you don't have much left. I make pasta with breadcrumbs, crunchy garlicky breadcrumbs, and it is so good and so forgiving. And all you need is pasta, which you probably have because you probably did a big, you know, you probably stocked up on your pasta, um, and breadcrumbs. And you can use any kind of breadcrumbs. You can, you know, put some dry bread in the food processor, or you can just use the breadcrumbs, you know, regular shelf, regular breadcrumbs in a package or, or panko breadcrumbs, which are great, the Japanese ones. And you saute garlic, and if you like anchovies, but you don't even need them, um, in oil until the garlic is just fragrant and you add the breadcrumbs and you let them get really, really toasty. And then you add some, um, either a pinch of fresh thyme leaves or dried thyme and tons of black pepper and red chili flakes. Um, and then a little Parmesan cheese and you toss that all with some pasta and some pasta water and some grated lemon zest. And it is so simple. And so and this is the kind of food that revives your palate when you're feeling like I can't eat anything else. Everything tastes you know, I, I I can't find enjoyment. Everything just tastes the same. And then you eat a simple pasta like this, and it just brings you back. And if you have any fresh vegetables, um, sometimes I'll make that and I'll throw, if I have some kale, I'll throw the kale in with pasta or some broccoli or some, you know, vegetable matter. In with, you know, and you throw that in with the pasta, and then you put the breadcrumbs on top, and then that'll make it a little bit green. So this is peasant miserly food made into one of the great luxuries of the palate. Exactly. I mean, that really is. That is absolutely, you know, that's poverty food because you just, just pasta and breadcrumbs. But yet, but yet, it becomes this amazing thing. Cucina povera at its best. Yes. <laughs> Melissa Clark, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Talking Beats. The music discussed today is available in a playlist on my Spotify or anywhere you get your music. The original music is composed by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Melchuk. See you next time.